Let me introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Conan Nolan. He's a general assignment reporter for NBC4 Los Angeles and is the host of News Conference, the longest running political and public affairs program on Southern California television. And I must tell you, when I was 12 years old watching local news in Pasadena, it's a great memory. The story was high winds in the high desert and he was out there. And right during a live shot, he was hit by the largest tumbleweed I've ever seen. <laughs> And, and I knew right then, I think I was 12, 13 years old, I knew I want to be like this man. That's the job for me. He's always in the middle of it. No matter how high the winds are, he's there. So let me turn it over to uh, my friend Conan Nolan. Yeah, thank you very much, Joe. <laughs> You're very kind. I still have sand from some of those windstorms in the Inland Empire in my ear. It's a delight to be here. Thank you very much. This is a great event, and this is a great organization. And we in television uh, frequently don't get out very often. We like to uh, say at the end of a newscast, thank you for inviting us into your home, but usually we, we, we barge our way into your home, and we do all the talking. We don't do any of the listening. And so it's great to be here, and, and it's great to be part of a, of a panel where I, I, we hope to, in some way, at, at least incrementally, advance our knowledge of this particular topic. And to that degree, let me introduce our panelists. I'm going to go to my notes here. But to my right is Kevin Roderick. Kevin is a former LA Times man. He's been a newspaper man uh, just about his entire adult life. He's now in the uh, cyberspace. Uh, he's, he's the uh, creator and editor of LA Observed. And it's one of those websites that everybody in my business goes to on a daily basis. He is a partisan Southern Californian and somebody who loves this place deeply. You also hear him uh, frequently on KCRW in Santa Monica. He roved the state for the Los Angeles Times for years. And what he really likes to do uh, eventually is the de definitive book on California. He's already written a few. His book on Wilshire Boulevard, well worth the money. It's one of the great books about uh, a great concourse of Southern California. Kevin Roderick, thanks very much for being here. Also with us from Arkansas to San Francisco and out of the University of Washington, Margaret O'Mara is a professor, a historian of the modern United States. Her fascination is with the knowledge economy and how that economy has developed in certain, certain specific spots. She wrote a book about the evolution of Silicon Valley, for example, cities of knowledge, uh, Cold War science, and the search for the next Silicon Valley, uh, which explores, uh, again, uh, how Silicon Valley came to be, why other U.S. regions did not become uh, the Silicon Valley, and there are plenty of other places that want to do what they do there somewhere else, Boulder, for example, the Silicon Valley of the mountains. She's currently an associate professor of history at the University of Washington. Thank you very much for coming. Gray Brecken is a Cal man, the mother and campus from uh, Berkeley. He's a historical geographer and author uh, whose chief interests are the state of California, the environmental impact of cities upon the hinterlands, and the invisible landscape of New Deal projects, which crisscross California and uh, most of us are blind to, but if you look out for them, you can see them. He's currently a visiting scholar at UC Berkeley, the Department of Geography, and founder of the project as scholar, I'm sorry, and the project scholar of the California Living New Deal Project, which I'd like you, you to talk about at some point, if you don't mind tonight. Uh, he travels extensively. He always returns to his cat, though, in the flats of Berkeley, not the hills. <laughs> Doctor, thanks for coming. <laughs> Alan Mayer, if you're in deep shit, this is the guy to call. Uh, so uh, I tell you, this is an individual who is described by Daily Variety as Hollywood's most prominent crisis specialist by CNN as the master of disaster uh, and by ABC News and 2020 as the man to call if your star is facing a scandal. And whose star isn't facing a scandal these days? <laughs> Alan Meyer is widely known as one of the leading communication strategists in the entertainment industry. Since 2008, he's been the principal partner of the uh, public relations firm 42 West, uh, where he heads the company's strategic communications division. Thank you very much for coming. <laughs> We live in a dynamic state, but it's a great big state, 58 counties, and uh, it, it has, ever since statehood, had a north-south divide, and to a certain degree, some of us wonder whether that divide is getting uh, greater uh, in some respects as we see a new evolution in, in industry and in business and in politics. Uh, Kevin, you've been seeing this for 25 years now. Uh, give us, on this, on this topic, 
do you see uh, a, a, a north-south divide, or are the economists, as in the ones at UCLA most recently, are saying, frankly, the north and south on the coast have far more in common than the north and south in inland California? Hmm. Well, I think uh, that last part's definitely clear. I mean, the coast is, is one California, and the inland is another. It's just unclear whether there's enough people in the inland to really matter. Um, uh, but I mean, <laughs> in some ways, San Francisco and Los Angeles and the places in between Santa Barbara, San Luis Obispo, uh, the, you know, you go to them and they seem like they're different, uh, but you compare them to the places that just go inland from Los Angeles, you don't only have to go as far as Ontario to start to see different kind of places in all the Central Valley. But So I, I, I do like the concept of the... Uh, east-west split down maybe the I-5, I guess, is the barrier that people count. But I do think there is a north-south uh, divide. You know, when I was the, my favorite job in the newspaper uh, when I was at the Times was I got to rove around the state and just kind of go into any place in Northern California I wanted to go and write about it. And I had grown up in Southern California, so that was my sort of my treat to wander around Northern California with everywhere from you know, San Francisco to Yosemite to Hot Springs, uh, you know, rural places all over the state. And, you know, and I came to think that it was a very distinctive, distinctive area compared to the South. But when, then when I became an editor and I started sending other people up there and I started hearing about, you know, the, the uh, sub sprawling suburbs that were growing outside of uh, the Bay Area along 80, connecting, essentially connecting San Francisco with Sacramento, or going up the 101, connecting San Francisco all the way to, to Healdsburg with just one suburb after another. I began to think that they were becoming more alike, that, that Northern and Southern California were starting to sort of meld in a certain way. And then this summer, I was in Seattle, and I decided to, this time, my wife and I flipped to Seattle to see friends, and then we decided we would drive back, because I wanted to experience really the full length of California, at least from the Oregon border back down to Los Angeles. And I guess something about coming in from the north, I think, coming from Seattle and down through Portland and then along the Oregon coast and coming into Crescent City and you know, seeing where the tsunami wipes out the little town's harbor every time there's a tsunami anywhere in the world, it seems like. Um, you know, and there's just some really you know, um, nice areas of Northern California, even still, places that are not like you'd see in, in Southern California. And you know we're in a kind of a an era now where politically, the 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 uh, the field seems to be tilted to the north. All the statewide officers are from San, the San Francisco area. Um, you know the governor, uh, even though Jerry Brown first ran for office down here in Los Angeles, he basically immigrated to the north and was elected from the north this time around. His dad was the uh, was the DA of San Francisco. Yes, he tells he grew stories up in the north. about right yeah. exactly. He grew up in the north. In some ways, maybe he is the perfect uh, candidate for this kind of this California in this era because he grew up in the north, lived in the south for a while, became, you know, established a political base down here, then moved back to the north, moved back to Oakland, um, established himself there, and then when he ran, he won because of all the votes in Southern California. So, uh, <laughs> and and I think that's the kind of the um, where I'm going here, with, you know, kind of lesson-wise is that. Uh, right now, it, all, it looks like the field is tilted towards, southern, towards San Francisco because of the representation in, in politics, especially democratic politics. There's just, I, I, the question was asked in the setup for material for this, this uh, event tonight was, is that a, a permanent shift toward the north? And I'll just kind of stake out a position. I don't think it is. I think it's a, a, a temporary, you know, it's, it's flopped back and forth. The North was dominant in California politics for so long. And then in the post-war era, it became uh, in the South for a while. And I think it's just a temporary shift up to the North. And that is because the numbers are just so overwhelming. They're true. Uh, uh, but there's a, a Baker versus Carr, I think, was the name of the Supreme Court ruling in the early 1960s mm. that re that... It used to be, believe it or not, the California legislature uh, had the assembly and the state senate. The state senate had 40 seats, uh, but it was, and it was by a population, but you could only have three counties, a maximum of three counties in any one district. So you had Modoc County with 14,000, and there were Trinity and two, three counties combined with 14,000, and you had LA with, at the time, with 4 million or 5 million. And so there was a Supreme Court decision that says, gotta have one man, one vote. <laughs> 
or one person, one vote. And so everybody then said, ah, Southern California is going to dominate the legislature because all the, all the people are down there. And that hasn't happened. My question to you, though, uh, how much does Silicon Valley have to do with the, not just the, the political shift has something to do with that, I would, I would think, because they're pouring money into campaigns up there. But it would seem to me that in a, they have a different relationship with politics than the Hollywood, in the, the movie industry does. Um, explain if you see any correlation between yeah. the rise of Silicon Valley, uh, the, the knowledge economy around Stanford mm -hmm. and Cal, um, yeah. and, and, and what we see to be a, a political might coming from the area. Yeah. Well, the great irony of, of Silicon Valley, of course, is that it's, it's, a, it's a region whose founding mythology is based on, you know, we're entrepreneurs, we're pulling ourselves up, you know, by our bootstraps, it's all about engineer, engineering, innovation, smarts, we're in our garages, and it was built by public investment, not just the public investment of the Cold War, where you have the military-industrial complex essentially providing the first customer base for companies like Hewlett-Packard and Varian in the 1950s, um, but also the, the California state infrastructure, the investments that the state is making in roads, in higher education, all these things that are going on in the 50s and 60s that are kind of allowing Silicon Valley um, to come to be. So if you, um, but the, the Valley now has this, you know, this interesting, I think going to your point about, you know, there's, things change, you know, that yes, maybe you'll have one, one end of the state is ascendant now, um, but we'll, it'll go back and forth. And you see this vividly in the history of Northern California generally, which is a whole cycle of boom and bust, boom and bust mm -hmm. moments of great, you know, the great, from the gold rush to the Cold War to the era of Apple and Google and on and on and on. It's this periodic, you know, uh, these, these giant, sometimes bubble economies, sometimes real economic growth, followed by these busts, whether they be you know, the bust of the late 1960s where defense spending <coughs> goes down and a very defense-dependent Silicon Valley is saying, okay, turn out the lights, it's all over, what are we going to do? To, um, to the dot-com, you know, end of the dot-com boom, and on and on. So I think these, these things are cyclical, but the, the Silicon Valley plays a funny role in, in state politics because it's sort of dissociated from it. It kind of has this, when it does get engaged in politics, it is getting engaged at kind of this high individual level, individualized level, where people with a lot of wealth are either engaging in politics themselves or trying to influence policymaking, often at the federal level. Um, more more visibly than at the at the local level, they're outward looking. They're thinking about you know H one B visa policy, and maybe not as much about you know how are we going to get this road rebuilt or how are we going to you know rebuild our higher education system. But they have an appetite for politics, that's for sure. Some do, but some are very um, apolitical. I mean, think think about a lot of the you know, the, the marquee names in the technology industry, many of whom will not want to identify as a Republican or as a Democrat, and in fact will give to both parties, um, that will walk, try and walk this middle line. Yes, when they um, engage in electoral politics themselves, they are, you know, they are, they are choosing a side. But it's a funny relationship, and I think it has to do with this um, a, a kind of a collective amnesia on part of the valley that is is very long standing and not a, a recognition of you know we are not a creature public policy doesn't have anything to do with us. We just need to be left alone so we can innovate and make cool stuff. And government gets in the way rather than than um, than helps us. And and the secret to Silicon Valley was a whole lot of capital. The first venture capitalist for the Valley was the federal government in the 1950s, 1960s. There wasn't a commercial market for um, oscillators and semiconductors and all these cool things. And um, and the federal government, the Defense Department mainly provides this market. And so the, the public spending that undergirds the Valley's success is something that often falls out of the present-day consciousness of those who are still um, a part of that ecosystem. Uh, Gary, is there not something to be said for just being closer to government? You know, the Bay Area is a lot closer to Sacramento than LA is. And I've just noticed that um, whenever you want an environmentalist of, of any standing on an issue, you have to call a 415 area code. And, uh, <laughs> they're represented down here, but I'm just astonished as to how. And so uh, one gets the impression just the fact that they're that close, closer, there's this, they just care about it more. 
Well, are you asking about environmentalism or just... Well, actually, that's a general question, but I mean, just as a historical geographer, to a certain degree, Mm -hmm. it's location, location, location when it comes to politics. I mean, Sacramento isn't nearly as distant physically and in terms of our awareness as uh, to the Bay Area than it is to us. Yeah, but but L.A. has such a gravitational pull to it. I mean, it's like Jupiter compared with the Earth or something. I mean, it really doesn't matter um, how far it is. And I think it really has, I mean, traditionally, of course, that was true. San Francisco was the imperial city, not just of California, but of the entire West, and hoped to become the Rome of the Pacific. And But that all began to change around 1900, 1910 or so for a variety of reasons, a lot of which had to do with the fossil fuel, which is directly underneath the city, of course, and entertainment as as well, too. Um, And also the 1906 earthquake and fire, um, which just stopped it in its tracks while Los Angeles kept growing. So that that San Francisco was never able to realize greater San Francisco, which would have incorporated the entire Bay Area into a metropolitan region modeled after New York, but really somewhat more like Los Angeles. And they were going to fill in the Bay, you know, up until about 1969, um, if the, um, speaking of environmentalism, if the uh, faculty wives in Berkeley had not stopped them from filling in the Bay, the Bay Area would have looked a great deal more like Los Angeles than it does today. Um, That is amazing. I'm not sure that um, the proximity really has a lot to do with it. I think a lot more has to do with the old Phil Burton political machine, which somehow or other, and I've never quite understood it, just keeps going on and on like the Ever-Ready Bunny. It just doesn't stop. And so you've got Boxer, Feinstein, Willie Brown, um, Jerry Brown, you know, and they sort of somehow or other reproduce themselves over and over again. Um, Feinstein's enormously important in this because of her seniority in Congress and her husband's enormous wealth, uh, which is not accidental. Um, The Chronicle has been covering for the Feinstein-Blum public-private partnership for quite some time. And so, um, so Feinstein has an enormous amount of power and, of course, that gives a gravitational attraction to the Bay Area. And I also want to say it's not just San Francisco, it really is Silicon Valley as well, too, because it's, a, it's really a metropolitan region of 8 million people. And the money in Silicon Valley is enormous. And what people don't understand, you know, you were getting at it, is that Silicon Valley is an arsenal. Um, it is an enormous arsenal. And um, the Chronicle did a series of articles um, just after the Iraq war called Bay to Baghdad, which was very informative about the huge amounts of federal money that come into the Bay Area to develop remote control technologies to wage war in other places. And so that's tremendously important. I don't think that aerospace in Southern California is as important anymore. Not like it once was, that's for sure. No, I think Silicon Valley has really sort of replaced it in that way, in this kind of etherealized remote control technologies. But that has been tremendously lucrative. And so uh, and that's the Bay Area ecosystem. You're right that mm-hmm. you have, you know, companies like Bechtel that are yes. based up, you know, north mm-hmm. of the that, that that you have this symbiotic relationship, and that this goes back to World War II with you know this connection between the city of San Francisco and the power brokers in San Francisco, yeah. and what develops to the south. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, to to think of power centers. Um, there's a redwood grove just north of San Francisco that is one of the Earth's great power centers. That's Bohemian. The Bohemian, <laughs> the Bohemian Club. Club, right. And that is, you know, every summer you have this confluence of power in that one place. And it's partly from Southern California, but it's from all over the world. I think that's how, that's an indication of its power, is that the executives in Southern California aspire to go to the Bohemian Grove <laughs> in the summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's interesting mm-hmm. because... You, one talks about the, um, the knowledge economy mm-hmm. around the Bay Area and Silicon Valley and all of that. But increasingly, what we're seeing down here is a kind of intangible knowledge <coughs> economy. I mean, the heavy industry, you know, the extent that we had an auto industry here, uh, aerospace, um, has, has left the region. Um, you know, the number of Fortune 500 companies uh, has declined probably by 90% mm-hmm. in Southern California over the last, you know, 25 years. Um, which is not to say though, that Southern California and, uh, in general and, and Los Angeles in, in, in particular become inconsequential places because what you have is, is you know, uh, an entertainment uh, <coughs> complex 
um, that, that you know, defines popular culture, not just in this country, but you know, for most of the world. Um, and even though in terms of numbers, it's certainly dwarfed by you know, the tech industry. And, uh, you know, the obvious statistic is you, you take uh, global uh, box office revenues for last year. It's about $33, million, $33 billion. You know, the, the four or five biggest tech companies are 10 times that, and that's just four or five companies. Yeah. I mean, there's no comparison in terms of the sheer size of the economic engine that's up there. And yet this much smaller uh, uh, community that we have here wields this enormous influence. You know, it, and it's the same thing when we talk about you know, what part of the state will dominate you know, the legislature and, and, and the arms of government. Before I was uh, sort of a Hollywood fixer, I was a political reporter for many years. Um, and one of the things I've always noticed about this state, I mean, you asked before about, is the cyclical. And, you know, if, if you study politics at all, you recognize that it's always cyclical. No matter what you're talking about and where you're talking about it, it's always cyclical. Um, and in this particular case, I think what we're seeing is um, you have a, um, a political culture down here which became very fragmented, and you have a political culture in the Bay Area um, which was very much, and we talked about this uh, in the green room earlier, much more similar to East Coast traditional political um, organizations. I mean, Los Angeles, I mean, it's, I think, a truism of, of, of local history. Los Angeles never had a Tammany Hall, um, and you never had that mechanism where the immigrant groups um, that came into the city over the course of its evolution wrested control of the political machinery from the, you know, the, city fa the founding fathers and mothers of the city. Um, but what we have now in California is, so you have this uh, much greater political intensity in the Bay Area, which translates into control of all of these elective offices. But the real wild card in all of this is you have this rapidly growing um, you know, Hispanic community, um, particularly in the Central Valley, um, you know, which has yet to flex its muscles. And once it starts flexing its political muscles, which one could expect in the next 10 years or so, the equation will change radically. And then it's not going to be a question of, you know, Southern California versus Northern California. It's going to be this whole, you know, strip inland um, where we're seeing, and, and it's partly in the south and it's partly in the north, and it's mainly in the middle, um, you know, where we're seeing this just tremendous growth. And, you know, there are, you know, you said there are not a lot of people there now. There are, going, there are and there are going to be an enormous number of people, you know, in the next 10 years. Yeah, does the, your, your clients, do they, um, uh, when, when we keep saying that Hollywood is the ATM for the Democratic Party, um, do they bristle at that, uh, or do they, because one gets the impression that there's a different kind of connection between the Silicon Valley folks that are involved in politics and the Hollywood folks that are involved in politics. Well, I think that the difference is just that the Hollywood folks have been at it a lot longer. I mean, it goes back to Jules Stein and the Wassermans and... You know, and 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 you know, to the to the Kennedy administration, uh, at least if not earlier. Um, but the, what they have in common with Silicon Valley is the the, the focus is much more national, um, and, and 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 you know the issues are. Uh, I mean, they get involved in state races just because that's how you develop national candidates. Um, but you know, they're, they're always looking to Washington, um, and it's interesting because when you look at the you know. The, again, the sheer financial firepower that the tech companies can bring versus what you know, the entertainment industry can bring. There's no comparison. Obviously, there's so much more money up north. And yet, if you look at the big political battles Hollywood has been fighting with Silicon Valley when it comes to piracy and intellectual property issues, Hollywood's been winning in Washington and at the FCC. And the reason is because their lines are better. But, you know, they get a lot more bang for the buck because they've been at it a lot longer. I mean, Google's only had a Washington public affairs office for what, four years? Yeah. I mean, and, and, and Microsoft hasn't had one for much longer than that. And you would it's think the that these- It's antitrust trial. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, they, yeah, and, and you know, what they've learned, you know, in, you know uh, at great, uh, well, actually not such great cost to them, but, um, they got scared is that they, they have to participate. They can't pretend they're a bunch of libertarian you know, engineers who, as you said before, don't need you know, anybody's help. They just need you to, to get out of their way. But you know, Hollywood has a huge head start. And, and I think to, to answer your question more directly, people in Hollywood, on the one hand, they sort of bristle about being the ATM, but they kind of like it too because they know it makes them important. And in fact, one of the you know, the issues right now is the, the lukewarm feeling about Obama. Um, 
is is causing a you know a, a tremendous split in in the, in the ranks of a lot of the the big givers in Hollywood. Um, but you know we can't forget that that uh, you know one of the the big um, defining moments of the 08 presidential campaign was when David Geffen, you know, decided that that Hillary couldn't win and and, and Obama could. Yeah, that was tectonic in that race. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I like the I was mentioning to them in the green room that um, I lived for a while in San Francisco, worked on some campaigns in the 70s. And one of the things that I remember from vividly from that is that um, it is it, it's in, in terms of minor leagues training your candidates for higher office. That is a far more intense, as you mentioned, it's, it's like Manhattan, it's like Boston, uh, where you talk politics, you, you've got a bar down the block, you run into the opposition there, you're talking politics there, and you can't get away from it, but you love it. Uh, and it, it's, it's a little like, this, this analogy is not going to go that far, but I'll give it a shot. Um, you have some communities that will spend money on a great big sports field, and they'll have all sorts of soccer games and baseball games and Little League games, and they all go there, and other communities that don't, but they've got a little park just down the block, or they've got a dead-end street, so the kids are playing there every night. No uniforms, but they're playing every night. And that's the difference I saw in San Francisco and L.A. And that's why Barbara Boxer, who was a secretary working for John Burton, and she learned retail politics from the Burton brothers. And then she made her way. Leo McCarthy did the same thing. Howard Berman from down here, but uh, learned it from uh, when he was in the legislature. Do you, am I off base on that? You would know. You no, would. I don't think you're off base at all. And I would carry the analogy just a little bit further that, you know, while San Francisco was, you know, uh, I mean, to make it a sports analogy or a baseball analogy, while San Francisco was continuing to, you know, have new candidates come up from its minor leagues and and people would learn how to do politics there and it's one consistent organization that's been there for decades. Los Angeles has been kind of rebuilding and it's been switching over from the black Jewish coalition that elected Tom Bradley uh, that Howard Berman was part of uh, that was dominant here for a number of decades and switching over to a more, you know, uh, where democratic politics is driven by Latinos like Antonio Villaraigosa and Fabia Nunez and their connections to the unions. And I think we're seeing, we're, you know, we've seen uh, that group start to gain some power. I mean, with the last five or six speakers of the assembly in Sacramento are from Los Angeles, uh, all of them except Hertzberg and Wesson, uh, Latino. But you haven't seen that translate into the kind of power, the kind of statewide attractive candidate that's that's still to come. But sometimes I wonder. There's a gentleman's agreement in Sacramento that this, the president pro tem of the Senate and the Assembly Speaker will from, be from different parts of the state. Mm -hmm. And so if if you've got a pro tem who's from the north, then de, de facto they've got to get a Southern Californian. And sometimes I wonder if they didn't have that rule, if we if we'd even have a Southern California Assemblyman or Assembly Speaker. Well. I suspect he would, since you know something like a third of the assemblymen are from Los An from the Los Angeles area and are elected, you know, and are all Democrats. This is the strongest base of Democrats, much more concentrated Democratic stronghold than San Francisco is, you know, by far. And I think, you know, so I would suspect it would still be, uh, uh, you'd still see speakers from the South. Uh, still, though, uh, when. If you look at the California delegation to the United States House, everybody would say, well, you've got so many members. Uh, why is it that the National Earthquake Center is in Golden, Colorado? Mm. Well, if you ask the people at Caltech, it's because the California delegation can't get its act together. Mm. And that's because the state is so big, uh, there is no continuity, no like-mindedness between the Republicans of the inland counties and the Democrats of the coast. And so Southern California sort of mirrors that in so many respects, because you've got... You, know, you would think that they would be able to dominate ca policy development in California, but it's so big that there's, again, no continuity of political will from this region. Is there something to that? Well, California is not alone. I mean, I come from the state of Washington, where you have, you know, east of the Casca Cascades and west of the Cascades. We talk about the Cascade Curtain. That these mm -hmm. mountains form this political divide um, where never the twain shall meet. And, and, and you really have a hard time getting the east and west parts of, of Washington and Oregon to agree with each other. So California is not alone, but I think you do have something with the size thing. And, and the size thing, in a way, it's, it's, it's so big that not only is it hard to you know, hurt all the cats and to get everyone on the same page, there's so many different warring identities, not just, I mean, 
the, not even statewide, just even within the regions themselves. I mean, think about LA versus, uh, and the Bay Area versus Seattle. I mean, Seattle, you can actually have a, a, a room like this and get all the key decision makers kind of sitting around a big table and, and not that everyone's gonna agree, but the size is different. <laughs> but the size, I think also, in a strange way, people overlook how powerful California is. I mean, the, as an economy, demographically, again, going to Hollywood and the Valley, these power brokers looking outward, looking to Washington, D.C. for this is where we change the world. If I'm going to get involved in politics, I change the world by, you know, going, going to Capitol Hill. And, and that is, it's an interesting thing. I think the size, it's, in fact, it's, it's so big and so hard to get one's hands around that that um, makes a lot of the people who could make a difference overlook the power they have to make a difference. You know, I think you put your finger on a very important thing. I mean, we, this discussion in a lot of ways is framed in terms of politics, um, and which is not an unimportant subject. But what makes California, it's always seemed to me, a consequential place, not just in, in the country, but in the world, are things other than its politics. And when, when people and pundits talk about the decline of California because of the political dysfunction, um, and the resulting economic, you know, problems. Um, that's real, but it, it totally misses, you know, it, or at least misleads us to a certain extent because California's importance in the world um, is really unaffected by all of that. Mm. I mean, the fact that, you know, we are the center of most of the, you know, of the high-tech innovation that matters and that has transformed the way people live everywhere. Um, the fact that, you know, that we're also the center of you know, the biggest generator of, of popular culture um, and that affects people everywhere. Those things continue you know, regardless of what they're doing in Sacramento or not doing in Sacramento. And there's no question that if, if the, you know, the political problems and dysfunctions were sorted out, it would make life a lot easier for an awful lot of people. But in terms of California's stature or influence you know, as an actor that matters, it's almost irrelevant. Yeah. To the rest of the world, there is no north-south split, yeah. I don't think, it's in California. California. Right. Yeah. Well, and to, to that degree, there's an argument to be made that the reason why you had the innovation in Hollywood, the reason why you had the innovation in, in San Jose and in Silicon Valley is exactly because it was 3,000 miles from Washington. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was a, you know, the, the, the movie industry came out here in large part not just because uh, they couldn't shoot indoors and needed an outdoor venue and they had the beach and the ocean and the mountains and that kind of thing, but you were 3,000 miles from the attorneys who were trying to enforce Edison's copyright. Uh, um, and that hasn't, cha that hasn't changed all that much. I mean, I came out here to start a business 20-odd years ago, because there's a, even in Los Angeles in, 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 in the early 1990s or late 1980s, there was a markedly different atmosphere and, and, and attitude towards entrepreneurs than there was on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And I say that as a native New Yorker who always thought he'd be a New Yorker all his life, mm -hmm. and still have great affection you know, for the city. But um, you know, there, is a, there was, and I suspect still is, um, I know still is because I've got a you know a five-year-old company now that much o more open attitude, and I'm not talking about government regulation. That's a you know, different issue, but that's a you know that's a practical problem. There's but in terms of the the kind of almost spiritual welcome that you need to be able to to start an enterprise, very different. And you know, this is the West or West of the West, as as Twain said. But it's very different, and that's you know something that as much as we screw things up you know, still sustains us, I think. And it's interesting when you talk about uh, policy makers, you had an election this past year where you had, um, well, you had somebody from Silicon Valley in Meg Whitman, and she ran against Steve Poisoner, also Silicon Valley. So you get the impression that this industry is starting to develop its own political class, uh, none of which want to run for local office, they want to run for statewide. And then you had Hollywood, uh, which, uh, with George Murphy, Ronald Reagan, and then you find out from Vanity Fair that Arnold Schwarzenegger decided to run on an impulse, sort of like a candy bar at the checkout stand. You know, he just decided, oh, I'll do that, and look, I'll screw everything up, and I'll be governor in two months. I don't know if they has killed another actor from running for office. Uh, but, but, but certainly, although you say they're more interested in ideas and, 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 and making them successful than they are in politics, uh, there seems to be a progression. There's an evolution where, where the industry matures and then all of a sudden they see not just the stuff in Washington, but they, 
they see what's happening locally and, and, yeah. and statewide and they get involved. Well, there are, and there's an impatience, I think. I think this goes to sort of the innovation point that, that, I mean, this is a state full of, you know, I mean, full of people who kind of <coughs> came out here. The people who came out here originally were either fleeing from something or couldn't, you know, succeed anywhere else. Or kind of, they're iconoclasts. They're, 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 they're a lot of riffraff. Um, and riffraff bring good ideas, and they're they're willing to to think about things differently. And the the famous sort of tolerance of failure that the valley has, you know, you can go get funded for your for a company, fall flat on your face, and then get funding again because they think you're a smart person with a good idea. Although apparently now, according to Vino Kosla, you have to be under 25. But nonetheless, <laughs> ageism aside, all those who are under 25, go and get some funding. Um, uh, but it's uh, to I, I think that what the the, the, the political engagement that I see and and you guys correct me if, if I'm wrong here but I see it as a fueled by an impatience with process the impatience with the way things are with Arnold Schwarzenegger being like oh, yeah I'm gonna run for governor sure you know I'll make a splash on Leno and what you know what the heck this is interesting and and Meg Whitman you know. Uh, campaign. Yeah, I'm going to spend 150 million dollars. Yeah, I'm gonna, why but not? I want to do something differently. You know, I know how to run a company, and 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 Sacramento should run differently. Washington should run differently. That that it's kind of this. I want to shake things up, not oh, I want to be part of this. I well, want to serve. The funny thing is, if you compare, if you take Arnold and Meg Whitman as kind of representing two different you know approaches, um, in a funny way, Schwarzenegger, I think represents a, a more sophisticated and mature approach to politics, bear with me, um, <laughs> uh, than, than Meg Whitman did. And, and just, I'll digress for a quick second, I think there's a, there's a reasonable chance that also that Schwarzenegger was kind of having you know, a little fun with us when he said that to Vanity Fair. I wouldn't necessarily take it at face value. But I think what Schwarzenegger recognized um, before, you know, when he decided to announce, and whether it was an impulsive decision or not, he had been thinking about it for a while. He, he is, and I must say, um, you know, whatever else you can say about him, and there's an awful lot one can say, he is a very shrewd and very brilliant marketer of his, and, and he, uh, of his own brand, most of all. And I think he, he has a very uh, intuitive understanding of of how media culture operates, and it's, it, I mean, his, his story is a famous one, and um, it, 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 it's worthy of study if you want to know how celebrity culture um, and, and mass media intersect. Um, and I think he understood that um, we, you know, the, the, the popular culture and the political culture had begun to merge, um, and this ob the obsession that we all have and, uh, with celebrity had become so powerful um, that he was in a position, um, you know, to exploit that brilliantly. Um, that he could, you know, decide to run, and it was not a ridiculous notion. Um, in the way that when R Ronald Reagan was first running for president, it was considered a ridiculous notion. You know, even though he had been governor for two terms. Um, but, you know, 25, 30 years on, it was a very different story. And so that, that, that I thought, was shrewd and sophisticated of of Schwarzenegger, whereas I think, and maybe I'm doing Meg Whitman a disservice because I know a lot more about Schwarzenegger and where he came from than I do about Meg Whitman, although I do know a little about her. And my sense always was that she was operating out of the same impulse, and I think impatience is a big part of it, that we see in a lot of, 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 of corporate CEOs who decide to go into politics, where one, they begin running for some high-level executive position, um, because they think if only the government was run like a business, um, it would all be fine. Well, of course, government is not a business. They're very, very different enterprises. But that, and, and, and to believe that, you know, and you know, there are a lot of politicians who use that line cynically because they know there's a superficial logic to it and, and people might think it makes sense. Um, but most of them are smart enough to know it's not really true. But there are some, and they tend to be the candidates who write, you know, nine-figure checks to their own campaigns uh, who actually believe that. Um, and it's a very kind of naive and unsophisticated approach, but because of the sheer weight of their, you know, financial uh, resources, um, they get very far. In fact, I think all the candidates that have come out of Silicon Valley have had that same approach. Uh, Ed, going back to Ed Shaw when he ran for Senate 15 or 20 years ago, came out as an executive from Silicon Valley who was just, you know, kind of a logical candidate, not an emotional connection. But what does Schwarzenegger do? He announces on Jay Leno. 
right? That, that's where he makes his big announcement that he's running on Jay Leno and immediately gets that bounce. So he made the emotional connection to begin with. Yeah. Uh, right. Um, Greg, talk to me a little bit about your, you've been teaching it, you, you've been Cal for how many years now? 44. 44. I'm interested. I'm institutional memory there. <laughs> well, well um, I, this, this, we're, we're taking a little bit of a dogleg on this, but uh, a pal of mine said that um, uh, he teaches at Cal and at SC. And I asked him, I said, what's the difference? He says, well, 10 years ago, there's a huge difference. Uh, today, the smartest kids at, at SC are as smart as the smartest kids at Cal. Mm-hmm. There are more smart kids at Cal but uh, it's, it's really up the game. And when I, I, I your, your sense of where this generation is, that's, that's the new Barber Boxers, the new Feinsteins, the, the ones that are making their way in, do you see a, a sophistication uh, over the years uh, of your undergraduates and graduate students when it comes to politics and getting involved in the political process? Are they focus towards Sacramento, are they focus towards Washington. What's your assessment of the next generation of political leaders in the state? Well, I'm getting a sense, I mean, since I was, I first came to Cal in 67, um, it certainly doesn't live up to the reputation of the student guides who show people around that this is the center of radicalism and everything. It's not that. Um, It's far more apathetic today. I mean, the kids are are much more concerned with their technology, which diverts them from what's actually happening. There is some fury about um, what's happening to the university, but you know, students' memories are short. I mean, it's hard for them to imagine that it was once considered a California birthright to have a free education at the University of California. That, you know, when I tell them that, they can scarcely believe that. And what really concerns them now is the enormous amount of debt that they're piling up, and um, that they may not have jobs when they get out. And how are they going to pay it off? Because essentially they'll be on the hook for that. They can't default on it. So that's what's concerning them. What concerns me is just watching this great university being dismantled around me. Um, you know, it's... Well, um, is it being dismantled or is it being privatized? It's, I think, the same thing. I mean, you know, because it is becoming something very different from the university that I once knew. And they're divesting themselves of some great assets. I mean, they're asset stripping now. Uh, like the Water uh, Resource Center archive, which was just sent down to Riverside. Um, which was a world-class resource. Um, it's developing into profit centers, chiefly biotech, um, business, law, etc. Of course, sports, um, and so it doesn't look very good for the social sciences and the humanities, which nobody speaks of. You know, when when the president speaks about how we have to do math and sciences, somehow or other, the humanities just get lost in all of that. But um, I, I want to go back to what you were saying, I mean, because California does have this mythic image around the world, but it's losing it. Because people are quite aware that California and the other states, but particularly California, is changing. Um, I think largely thanks to this libertarian um, ideal um, that has had such an, Im- um, an impact on it. One of the most important things that ever happened in California's history is Prop 13. I mean, you asked who runs California. I'd say who ruined California. And my vote goes to Howard Jarvis um, because it took 30 or so years for it to really manifest itself. And the state is really falling apart now. That's why I guess I didn't, I sort of avoided your question about Sacramento because I don't think Sacramento's really a big player. It's now so hamstrung because the car has run out of fuel. And so. Where's California going to go if it can't well, if, if it's not, But if you're talking about the University of California and the priorities, and, the, mm-hmm. and you have two Berkeley legislators, mm-hmm. Democrats, who voted three times to raise the CCPOA, or the uh, prison guard salary, mm-hmm. and both uh, voted twice to cut the budget for the University of California. And so uh, you have a group out there called Govern for California. I just interviewed David, what's his name? He's mm-hmm. on the Regents. I forget, he's a Schwarzenegger pal. But he started this because he argues that the 120 members of the legislature have far more impact in California than the members of Congress do. And that's because it's roads, it's infrastructure, it's the University of California, it's light, it's power. Mm-hmm. And yet most people don't know who their legislator is I think you're far better if you're in the Bay Area to know than you are down here. That's my mm-hmm. uh, take. But um, there are solutions, uh, but we just, uh, for some reason, we just can't get to them. 
Uh, His argument is they're going to put money, they're going to put Silicon Valley money behind candidates of courage, ones who who will vote for the benefit of the state rather than for a particular business group, union, whatever it is. But, there, but, but uh, you know, you, you paint a dire picture for the UC, and of course when he talks about the UC, that's the infrastructure you were talking about. That is absolutely. That's how we got, what, certainly the, the Silicon Valley ecosystem is a product of that investment, that public investment, the sort of capital investment that only the public sector can do. I, you know, we can talk about private sector stepping up and filling in the gaps, but this is a lot of money here, and it's, it's a totally different, you know, I mean, you, you know, you're working, you're spending your life with the New Deal. I mean, a completely different, but, but we are still, you know, we, we rode the New Deal wave for a long time. Yeah. And, 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 and you're right, Prop 13, you know, who runs California? Howard Jarvis runs California. Well, yeah, I, I make the, we're going to open this up to questions. Who wants to defend Howard Jarvis over here? Yes, go ahead. Getting back to the north-south divide and elected officials and reflecting on our most recent election, uh, where we had Kamala Harris, Gavin Newsom, Jerry Brown, all Northern California. My observation, and I, I really want yours, is that people had the opportunity to vote for substance. What Kamala Harris did in San Francisco was very dynamic, very substantive, very important. We needed that statewide and nationwide. The same with Gavin Newsom, the programs with healthcare, and all, and they go on and on. Jerry Brown, really working to revitalize a very distressed area be in Oakland and making great strides. To me it was people had an opportunity to vote for substance and results uh, as well as people who presented the fact that they did that very effectively. That's my observation, but I'm really curious about yours and whether or not what you pe- thought people were voting for. And we talked about this already, that there was a more <coughs> impressive crop of politicians coming out of the Bay Area than there are coming out of, of, of Southern California. And you know, one of the reasons is uh, probably has to do with the nature of the political culture there. I mean, the, the farm team uh, aspect of it. Um, and I think also there's, um, I think the, the brightest stars, and this is a generalization that probably, Kevin, you can catch me out on, but my, my sense is that the brightest political stars in Southern California tend to look towards Washington as opposed to Sacramento. Well, I, th- I think that's somewhat true, but I do think we're in this position where a lot of the, the candidates that are coming out of this area are, you know, are not rising to the, you know, to the leadership positions in a, in a regional, you know, political, I hate to use the word machine, but kind of a regional political entity or animal. Uh, you, do, you look at some of the speakers who have been, like the current speaker, John Perez, is you know, uh, not uh, the kind of guy who's necessarily going to be an attractive statewide candidate. He was a union organizer. Uh, he's, you know, he's a large man. He's gay. He's, got, you know, he's just not the kind of person that's being groomed to be a statewide candidate. Uh, Fabian Nunez had his issues before him. Anton- Antonio Villagrosa looked like the, you know, the Southern California up-and-coming Democrat who had the brightest future until he kind of took his eye off the ball. And I, I think it really does come down to the quality of the candidates in, in, in lots of ways. It's a question for Mr. Mayor. Um, you rehabilitate reputations. If you went into work tomorrow in the state of California were in your outer office um, and said, do an Alec Baldwin on me, you know, mm. turn me from a laughing stock into, you know, uh, an Emmy-winning political right. contender, what would you tell it? Well, I mean, the key to any kind of rehabilitation is to, uh, to begin, and this is actually true whether you're talking about someone's reputation or they have a substance abuse problem, is the first thing you have to do is acknowledge that you have a problem and, and understand what the nature of the problem is. Um, and I happen to subscribe completely to what Gray was saying before. I think it, it goes back to Prop 13. We've created a, you know, uh, a system in which it's strangled itself and, and that it's, it's uh, you know, impossible to, to, to conceive of how um, uh, we can get a, a sensible politics in which uh, the government has no, no resources, in which we're totally dependent on, yes, if the economy as a whole is roaring, then maybe we're okay, but as soon as the economy slows down, you know, our revenues drop uh, dry up. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's obviously very analogous to, you know, to the, to the national, you know, economic situation where, you know, you, 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 you remove uh, the, the prospect of increasing revenues, you take them off the table because taxes are such a dirty word, 
Um, and you know the arithmetic simply doesn't work, and that's that's so. You know the first thing I would say to the state is you know I can't, and I, and I in fact I've said this to clients you know in, in different contexts, I can't help you unless you're willing to you know deal with the you know the problem because you know one of the things that that I enjoy about what I do is my job is not putting uh, the best face on a bad situation. I mean a lot of people do that and. To me, that's not very satisfying. It's 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 what's satisfying is changing the situation. And so, if the state of California was in my ante room and uh, uh, the landlord uh, <coughs> called the police, um, <laughs> you know what I would say is that that um, it's not about uh, changing perceptions. It's about changing the reality of, of of what's gotten you into this mess in the first place. You know, the voters a couple of years ago thought they did recognize the problem yeah. when they looked at the. The, you know, the fact that Democrats were becoming more liberal than most people in the state and the Republicans were becoming much more conservative than most of the people in the state. And that was blamed on the gerrymandering of the election districts that had been going on, the collusion between the parties to make sure that both parties had safe seats. So the, the people uh, voted on an initiative, two initiatives, to change that and to you know, supposedly start beginning to move both parties back toward the center. And... It doesn't look like that's what happened in this reapportionment uh, that just we've just gone through, but you know perhaps time will tell. Right, and and remember that there was a uh, there was a uh, son of a farm worker named um, uh, Abel Maldonado. He's a state senator in San Luis Obispo County, uh, who was um, was his vote for the budget. Now the whole budget was on his vote, mm -hmm. and he said, "I'll vote for the for the for the budget." Uh, and get myself uh, excoriated by John and Ken, uh, but you have to put on the ballot the top two. Uh, we're going to get away, away from... So, and that potentially will radically change the legislature, and it was because of one guy. Hmm. Uh, so one legislator can make a huge difference uh, with regard to that. Uh, I will defend Prop 13 in one respect, and that is that, because I remember it as well, um, Jerry, uh, the inflation had skyrocketed, so your, uh, your tax was based on the assessed valuation every year of your property. If your property value went up, if you're selling your property, that's great, but if you want to live there, that's not so great because your taxes were going really high. Jerry Brown had a huge surplus. They had billions of dollars in surplus, and he was negligent in getting it back into in, in tax. That's what he needed tax reform, and it wasn't until it was on the ballot that he decided to do it, and by then it was too late. But you're right, there's a law of unintended consequences, and we're seeing it today on Prop 13, I Can think. Can I just say, um, in the work that I'm doing on the New Deal, um, you know, I'm, I'm discovering a completely different world, and I'm, I'm actually working on a book called the, um, the Lost Ethical Language of New Deal Public Works. And I had recently had an experience where, at the State Library, I discovered three-volume uh, clipping books, um, scrapbooks, kept by a WPA administrator in the San Joaquin Valley. And that taught me something very interesting, which is in seven years during the Great Depression, every small town in the San Joaquin Valley um, got sidewalks, roads, schools, parks, um, water systems, sewage systems, electricity, etc. And I realized that within seven years of the Great Depression, California pole vaulted from the 19th into the 20th century. And what's interesting now, because I think largely because of Prop 13 and because Ronald Reagan infantilized us into believing that we could have it all and not pay for it, is that we are doing exactly the opposite. We're pole vaulting from the 21st back into the 19th century because all of that infrastructure is now breaking down. But, and that's because when these systems went in, there would be dedicatory ceremonies and people would be very grateful that they had been given all of this stuff and then they would almost immediately forget about it because we take it all for granted once it is in place. Yet Ronald Reagan signed the largest tax hike in state history at the time. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Next question. I'm curious about both of these regions on the world stage. I think you could argue that culturally and economically the north is kind of the center of tech and entrepreneurship that way. The south is kind of the center of the movie industry, entertainment. Um, I'm wondering what, which one you think is more likely to sort of shift, um, which one is sort of to lose that inertia um, to somewhere else in the world and why that would be. I may be betraying my own biases that um, I think, you know, uh, 
tech innovation is, is more, I can see that more easily becoming globalized um, than, than sort of popular culture. And I only say that because, you know, America, America's vision of popular culture has dominated the world uh, in an unbroken way for more than half a century. And I see it, you know, and if, if you travel anywhere, and particularly to, you know, um, out of the West, I mean, you go into the third world, it's, it's more powerful than ever. Um, and so, uh, whereas, you know, we're seeing, you know, uh, you know, obviously in Asia and China, um, and now beginning even in Eastern Europe and certainly in, in Israel and other parts of the Mideast, I mean, there are, there, are, there are little Silicon Valleys growing, in some cases they're not so little. Um, so I, I, you know, I could more easily see uh, Silicon Valley's preeminence being eroded than I could, you know, um, Hollywood's. Even though we recognize that, you know, the ownership of Hollywood is now no longer, you know, in California and in some cases not even in the United States anymore. Yeah, it's a global. I've, I've uh, spent a lot of time, you know, people ask, where's the next Silicon Valley? And, 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 and looking around the world. And, and this is a glimmer of good news for California. I don't think there ever will be another Silicon Valley. But there is no longer... Silicon Valley itself is no longer a place, it's a global network that many, many different places are taking part in. And there are many different pieces of the supply chain that are occurring in Bangalore and in Bucharest and in Sao Paulo and in Seattle and in you name it. Um, and a lot of different places are capitalizing on their core competencies, places that have the concentrations of people and capital and institutions. But Silicon Valley still holds this unique role, and it can't. And I don't see it being dislodged anytime soon, except, um, and and this is a big except. So the unique role it has is that it's kind of the command and control center for, for, technology. You know, the CEOs are there, the 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 people who are who are running it, and and people who are you know in Bangalore working as CEOs are often people who at some point spent some of their career in the Valley, and they're very still very connected to it. Um, but the reason that the Valley has been able to maintain this, this place at the top is so, so connected to higher education that a lot of people who are in the Valley, it isn't, obviously it's not native-born Americans. You have Chinese and, and Indian entrepreneurs in particular, but entrepreneurs from all over the world that are built the, the current Valley ecosystem. The, why did they come to the United States? They came to the United States to go to college, to go to graduate school. They came to the United States because currently 17 of the 20 top universities in the world are... American, but the, the what, where trends are going now, and that the the disinvestment in particularly the, the in public education is may change that significantly. So that might be what dislodges it. But I'm not the next Silicon Valley. I don't see you know Silicon Valley closing up shop and reopening in Shanghai. It's it's a very very different sort of world now. And I'd like to press the panelists a little bit harder on the uh, east-west divide that they were mentioning earlier. In particular, wondering what the new um, Central Valley Eastern California is looking like, what that coalition is like, um, and maybe kind of playing off of Prop 8 as a, as a bit of a vision of what that power in the state might be. Well, I think the San Joaquin Valley is, you know, as was mentioned earlier, is, is growing very fast, and it's, it is a different sort of place politically. It's not as Republican, though, I don't think, especially where it's growing in the cities, as uh, San Bernardino, Riverside, the Inland Empire, part of Southern California, uh, San Diego, and Orange County. So I'm not quite sure how that's, how that's going to play out. But I, I do think, and part of this is you know, maybe just a little bit of uh, uh, speculation, that there's going to be some issue that's going to tie together the inland parts of California in some unified way in opposition to the coast. And I don't know whether it's going to be something like Prop 8 or if it's going to be uh, over some you know, public services issue, some, some urban, suburban issue, or maybe it'll, it'll coalesce around somebody uh, who just becomes a leader or emerges out of you know, Apple Valley or, or uh, Palm Springs or Bishop or something like that to, to kind of lead people. I'm not exactly sure, but I do think it's a very interesting uh, split in the state to watch. And you, you just see it, you, know, you, you look at any of the maps of how California votes and it's just stark. You know, there's one color along the coast and there's a whole different color everywhere on the other side of, of I-5, with the exception maybe of some parts of Sacramento and, and uh, you know, some parts down here. Right. I, I'd, I'd say I'd use the coastal range as the dividing, as mm. the dividing point. But mm -hmm. you do see a change in that, for example, water policy 
Um, mm -hmm. you, you have an environmental community on the coast that, in my opinion, increasingly is becoming distant from the agricultural worker environment of the Central Valley. And you have 46% unemployment, unemployment in Madera County. And, and, and some of the Democrats that come out of that region have a difficult time on some of those issues. CEQA, the California Environmental Equality Act. You know, that's, that's, you talk about the New Deal. When FDR wanted to build a dam, he built a dam. Uh, you have the permitting in California right now is such that even if Villaraigosa and, and the president got their infrastructure uh, proposal passed through Congress, the regulations currently, it would be five to six years before you put a shovel in the ground. And so those legislators are having a hard time with the uh, equilibrium of, of what the coastal legislators have been talking about for so long. And when Pat Brown wanted to build a dam, he built a dam, mm -hmm. or a freeway, or a, or a university. Yeah. And it, it could be something as much, yeah, so it could be, you know, the they're essentially in a depression in parts of interior uh, California yeah, no now. doubt about that. And that could, that could be it. Of course, what's really going to change the Central Valley is whether they build the bullet train. Hmm. Um, I don't think that they will. I don't think we have the money to do it at this point. But, I mean, if they do build it, Visalia will be within commuting distance of Los Angeles and the Bay Area. That might. Now, there's a thought. Yeah, we could put up a shopping mall. There. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, if you were governor, hypothetically, and you served eight years, you got reelected, told everyone what they wanted to hear. Um, what were the three things that you did to turn California around? No, don't look at me. Well, I, I suppose if, I mean, I would focus on structural things um, in terms of the process of government. I would, you know, in some ways similar to what, what Jerry Brown is doing, um, although hopefully with more success, um, you know, in terms of uh, trying to change, you know, make it easier, frankly, to raise taxes. Um, to, um, I tried to get rid of term limits because um, I think we shortchanged ourselves terribly and, and uh, as a result uh, we have a government run by people who don't really know what they're doing or in some cases run by unelected people because they're the only ones up there who know what they're doing. Um, so those are the, that, that's what I would concentrate on. Uh, uh, as a counter to that, uh, raising taxes is one thing, but it would seem to me that you need to reestablish credibility with the voters in California. And right now, the, the state of California spends $2 billion more on pensions for state workers than it does on the University of California. If you're going to make an argument for, for raising taxes, because the voters have said no so many times, you, you have, and I think Jerry Brown is trying to do this, quite frankly, um, you have to say, listen, we're going to get our house in order. Uh, we're, we're not interested in spending unwisely, but your money is desperately needed for these institutions because we count on them. And I think the, establishing a dialogue, eventually you know, you'll, you'll get the vote you'll need, I think. Well, that's the hope. Taking off from the east-west split, I grew up in California, in Palo Alto, in Silicon Valley, before Silicon Valley existed. Mm -hmm. I came down to school in Southern California in 69 and have been here ever since. I can't tell the difference anymore. <laughs> uh, does it really matter the way it used to 50 years ago when you knew the ethos and the way of doing business in Northern California and the orientation was very different from Southern California? And you could, I mean, it was obvious, you could tell the difference. Is it really relevant anymore? You know, I don't think it is as much anymore at an emotional level. Um, you see it in lots of ways. You see it in the, you know, the rivalry between the Dodgers and the Giants. That isn't really there anymore in, in the same way. Certainly not down here uh, like it used to be. Um, I think the places culturally have, be have, have, have homogenized toward each other. I mean, you look at, uh, you know, the, there, you know the wine, there's popular wine country down here as much as there is up there now. Uh, you see, uh, uh, you know, technology uh, springing up out of Southern California as well as in Northern California, and there's just you know this kind of emotional split. You know, the ecotopia view of of Northern California and the you know the San Fernando Valley suburbs view of Southern California are just not um, you know kind of true anymore. They're not as written in stone. And just in, so when you talk to people, I don't feel the sort of emotional investment in that split like you used to. I feel the same way. I grew up right next to you actually in Los Altos. And we were brought up, 
uh, to hate Los Angeles, never knowing, never knowing that Angelinos couldn't care less. I mean, because <laughs> it's an imperial city, and you know, and so they, they like New York, they couldn't care. Um, and, but I don't feel that animosity so much anymore. I mean, because we just realized that you know, Los Angeles is a very different place, but it's fascinating. You know, I, I mean, I certainly feel that way, and. I was the first director of the Mono Lake Committee, and so I spent a great deal of time at Mono Lake. And frankly, I mean, I was ex extremely impressed at the lengths to which Los Angeles went to save that lake. Um, and I, I give it a great deal of cred for that, that I'm not sure that San Francisco would have done the same thing. I mean, at this point, it's tr you know, there's some people who want to tear down O'Shaughnessy Dam and free Hetch Hetchy. It's never going to happen. <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, there's less emotional edge between the North and the South. You go up to Oakhurst in the Sierras or, you know, you still go to Lee Vining, you know, and uh, by Mono Lake. And they really hate Los Angeles <laughs> up there. That's they where people right. that's where people feel this. And, you know, their feeling is we don't want to become like Los Angeles is what they're saying. Right. And uh, when the Embarcadero Freeway came down in the, uh, in the Loma Prieta earthquake and they decided not to build it, of course, uh, it's a typical San Francisco thing to do. You got an earthquake, a uh, freeway that's down, let's keep it down. It was a stroke of, it was, it was a stroke of brilliance because it opened up the entire, but I remember they put up palm trees and they said, oh my God, <laughs> palm trees. It's like Los Angeles. Holy cow. <laughs> they, they went bat, batty over that, but I, I agree with As Ken. well they should have. But, <laughs> but, the, but the answer is not just economic, it's demographic. I mean, think for example about the Santa Clara Valley, who was populated in Santa Clara Valley in the 50s and 60s, a lot less people. But the people who came in were not only, were people from somewhere other than California, and the same thing goes for LA. So mm -hmm. I think part of sort of understanding how the divide has closed or changed is and, and how it shifted to these more rural places is that in the past half century we've had this huge influx of people who are not from not from California mm -hmm. who who move here and become adopted, you know, Angelinos or Valleyites or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if you look at the UCLA Anderson forecast, which was out this past week, they're talking about Silicon Valley's uh, creating jobs at twice the national average, and the future is the coast. It's the coast. Knowledge-based economy, knowledge industries, yeah. uh, Hollywood, and, and, and therein lies the divide between the other side of California, which I think we're going to see in greater, greater disparity. The next hearing, the next meeting will be about that. About two, there are two very distinct states uh, within the same border, and that's going to be pronounced uh, with each uh, with each year. Thank you so Thank much you for the wonderful much. discussion. Yeah, I